Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Tennessee's Department of Children's Services has been in the news nonstop. Report after report detail failures inside the agency, from a caseworker shortage to kids sleeping on the floors of office buildings. The problems come as a record number of kids are pouring into the system, straining it even further. So how did Tennessee's Department of Children's Services get this way? And what reforms have worked in the past? We'll try and answer those questions during this hour. But first, let's start with the impact these things have on the children this system is meant to serve. WPLN criminal justice reporter Paige Flager has been following one family's journey through DCS, exchanging calls, texts, and attending hearings with 14-year-old Kendra Pruitt. Paige reached Kendra one evening by phone while she was at a foster home in Jackson, Tennessee. Juju, Juju, I'm, I'm in a meeting. Stop. Stop. Hold on. Yeah, just hearing that... You can tell it's hard for Kendra to get a moment alone. She's living with five other kids, including that baby, Juju. Yeah, uh, the other foster kids just got back in the house, so I have to put in the bathroom. And that's not the only problem she has with this foster home. Like, you can't flush toilet paper down the toilet, and, like, there's, like, a stinky smell in the bathroom because there's a big old trash can in there that you're supposed to put the toilet paper in. There's mold in the cabinet, she says, and she even found cat feces in her bed. When she asks for help with her homework, she says her foster parents tell her to pray about it. I don't mind praying, but like when it comes to schoolwork, I'm going to need help. But they don't want to help. Like a lot of kids with DCS involvement, this is not Kendra's first foster home. It's her third her journey with the system started in 2020. That's when Javon Pruitt, Kendra's mom, was in and out of the hospital after having amputations because of her diabetes. And it was hard for me to get my kids up and get them ready for school to, you know, get them, their day going because I was so broke down and sick. And Kendra, she really loves her mom. She wanted to stay home and take care of her. That's what caught DCS's attention. It started with the school. Four unexcused absences, and Metro Public Schools flags a student and tries to intervene. Five unexcused absences? That can result in a referral to juvenile court. More absences after that? Well, the court has the power to take the kid from their home. And that is exactly what happened. It really hurt me because I was like, do these people not realize I'm sick and I've been sending notes and, you know, trying to talk to the social workers and telling them that what was going on and we went to court and basically that's when they took my rights as a mother and was saying that my kids was like state property. I should say, like with most DCS cases, this is only one half of the story. The other half is in the state's hands, and DCS did not respond to WPLN's request for comment. 
But whatever the reasons, and there were likely multiple, Kendra and her brother Junior got sucked up into the system. I completely went numb. I just like, remember, I just didn't want to be away from my mom. And her mom says, ever since then, it's been a never-ending cycle. For their first foster home, Kendra and Junior were placed with a family friend they had never met. Her house was kind of like a hoarder's house. But the second home was even worse. That whole house just treated us like we were nobodies, really. The foster parent would take away their phones, she says, and kick them off the Wi-Fi, disconnecting them from their mom or even their homework. Kendra says she tried to tell the DCS workers. Like, I couldn't really tell them much either because they would always go back and tell the foster mom, and then the foster mom would get mad at me. Like, she she used to call me, like, all types of names, like a manipulator. And she would break me down, and this, she'll make it where, like, I feel like I'm not supposed to cry or have feelings. Things went on like this for a long time. Eventually, nine months after their first placement, the kids got to go home to their mom. But their journey was far from over. The family was officially on DCS's radar. A few slip-ups, the kids could be back in custody. It was a lot of pressure. They had a quiet year, but then in November of last year, Kendra says she was sexually assaulted by a boy at school. I can't really tell people about it because I was I was scared to even talk up about it and I kind of kept it in and it just it made me lose my self-esteem and stuff and made it where I just wanted to stay in bed all day she was having problems like getting up going to school and I didn't know what was going on but Come to find out that's what it was. She had been assaulted and she didn't want to go to school, which was understandable. And I wouldn't want her to go to school going through that either. And what happened next is pretty unbelievable. Kendra, a 14-year-old girl trying her hardest to stay with her family despite all the challenges, was told again she was being placed in foster care through a text message. I gotta come get you, you're back in custody or something like that. And I was just confused. Like I asked a lot of questions, but she wasn't really telling me anything. So I was lost and confused and angry. Kendra was in first period at school when she got the text and her mom, Javon, had no idea. They didn't even like call it and me know that they were trying to get her back into custody or what was going on. I knew nothing about DCS coming to pick her up because we had just had a meeting that Wednesday and they said that they recommend, you know, her to stay at home. I thought that's what they were going to do. A screenshot of the text from a DCS worker said, quote, a higher up made the call. I asked the department about this and they never responded. So in December, Kendra was taken to that foster home we heard about earlier in Jackson, two hours away from her mom. It was like, just 
Like my hands were tied and I couldn't do anything for my kids. Like I wasn't even the parent, basically. So that took a lot out of me. What mother would let somebody come in and take the kids? You know what I'm saying? So that was really stressful. It's early January, and I'm sitting with Kendra's family in the waiting room of the Metro Student Attendance Center, waiting for a hearing. They just said that we're here for a review of the case, but I'm praying they can just let her come home and get back in the normal school. But it turns out Kendra won't be joining the family in person today. Yeah, yeah, she, I wish she, I thought maybe she had been That's Kendra's grandpa, Wayman. He's been having a hard time himself, in and out of homelessness. Still, he made sure to be here today. I sleep in the car wherever I got to sleep, but I find somewhere, you know, but there ain't no big problem there. Just, just taking the kids out of your life is the biggest problem. He can deal with being homeless, he says, but he can't deal with this. Time passes slowly. The magistrate is running late. Javon and I start talking about her home life. She lives in a metro housing complex in South Nashville, and she knows it's not the best for her kids. The environment that they growing up in is like super bad. Like if we could get out of the environment that we're in, that would help out a whole lot. But to get out, she'd need help. She's been having trouble getting that lately. Her kids have seen things there that she wishes they hadn't. Like most recently with Junior. He's seen a dead body, I think it was about eight months ago. And just laying in the yard, you know, the guy had just got shot, so he ran home and that like friend that really made him not want to go outside for a while. He stayed in the house for about three or four months. Mm-hmm. We need family counseling. That's something we do need. We're still waiting on that. It's just a lot of different stuff, and I know DCS is backed up, but you got to think about it. These are people, kids' lives that, that's in stake right here. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're ready for them now. It sounds good. Okay. So you got to stay with me, okay? Yeah. You going to wait till they come out? Uh-huh. Keep okay. on them. Since Kendra is in the DCS system as a dependent and neglected child, I can't go in with them. So I stay in the waiting room as families cycle in and out. An hour later, Wayman rushes back. Okay, yeah. It's chaos. It's chaos? Yes. What's going on? The judge didn't know what was going on itself. Yeah. These people directing people's life the way they is to just put kids in a mental state where they're going to be messed up for the rest of their life. And they don't seem to understand that. All the waiting and anticipation just to find out Kendra would be staying in Jackson for who knows how long. And now, DCS says they want to take Junior, too. Now they're trying to see about getting my son. That's why I said it's a lot of mess going on, a lot of mess. A lot of mess and no idea of when exactly it might get cleared up. The family's just staring down a long road full of more hearings, more anger, and more confusion with no end in sight. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet one adult woman who went through DCS as a child and look back at the storied history of Tennessee's Department of Children's Services. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kalele Kelowna, and this is Nashville. Issues at the Tennessee Department of Children's Services have been growing. Before the break, we got a sense of what those issues are like up close and personal. 14-year-old Kendra Pruitt and her family have been through a lot of ups and downs over the past few years since Kendra has been in DCS custody. As we just heard, Living with a foster family can come with a lot of uncertainty and confusion. My next guest knows this all too well. Jennifer Rhodes is a social worker who spent nearly her entire childhood in foster care. Jennifer, thank you for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, thank you for having me today. Really great to have you with us. So, you know, to start, I'm wondering, what what is your reaction to hearing Kendra's story? I think Kendra's story... uh really hits a lot of what the common themes that children experience in foster care and out of foster care. Um, it really hurts my heart to um, know that things like this are continually repeated. And you'd wish that hearing stories like this uh, were rarity, but oftentimes they're very common. And, um, you know, just knowing that she needs uh, true protection and her family needs support and how how can we make a system and get to a system that that does that? Well, what resonated with you about her story? The parts that resonate with me are I feel I think her feelings of um, it sounded like she had been through a lot and had been uh, backed into a corner quite often and not feeling like there was someone there that she could really trust to go to um, while she's been in care and that deep longing for her, for her mom. Um, I heard that uh, very much. And I think it's um, the way her mom was very transparent about what some of their, their life is like. Uh, You know, a lot of families are placed in very vulnerable situations. And um, instead of viewing the unit as a family, as uh, to be supported by the system, oftentimes child removal is in taking the child out of the situation versus supporting the entire family on how to get to a better place. And so those are the areas that really resonated with me and feeling unsafe in foster homes. Mm. I think that there's a lot of... I'm sorry, continue. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that there's a lot of power dynamics uh, between the, the way that foster parents are viewed versus how biological parents are viewed and it plays out. Can you share what your experience in foster care was like? Yeah, so um, I came into foster care at a very young age, at four years old. Um, I don't think that um, anyone would have anticipated that I would have spent my uh, majority of my childhood in care. Um, but I did eventually age out of foster care at 18 without permanency. Um, I was in about 22 foster homes and 22 um, foster homes. You were in 22. Okay. Yeah. And you would think that, um, you know, 
when you really look at the system um, and think about how overwhelmed the system is and how important permanency is, uh, what is the what is the support for the child look like in those situations, and what does that do to your identity, and how you view yourself, and how you view if your environment's safe and if adults are safe? You know, you spend all these years in DCS custody, and you eventually, as you shared, you aged out of the system, but now you work with DCS involved kids at youth villages. Can you describe for us the work you do there? So the, the role that I have at Youth Villages now is I work for our scholars program. And the program uh, works for youth that have, or supports youth that have aged out of care um, that are going on to get their degrees in college, whether it be bachelor's degrees, technical, master's. You know, as we heard, Kendra, she's about two hours away from her biological family. Now, do you see that type of separation a lot in your work? I do think that it's common to see um, there be long distances between where a, a youth comes into care at and then where a youth is actually placed into a foster home at. Um, placements are uh, really hard to find. I think the foster care system is very overwhelmed. Um, and I think that uh, for, for, many, for many families, that is, that is common that, they, that they'll be pretty far. I think the system makes efforts to, but again, it's a very overwhelmed system. That's something we're going to explore a little bit later on in the show. Now, Kendra's grandpa, Wayman, said he's worried about how this experience will follow Kendra for the rest of her life. Now, you know, as someone who's lived through DCS placement yourself, how do you think it impacted you and your life? I think that my experience in foster care impacts a lot of my life, even now at um, 29 years old. Um, having been in care, there were a lot of things that I didn't uh, really learn or relationships that I didn't really get to build that were long-term and stable. I, mean, I think it, it definitely does something to, uh, it's very traumatizing to be in the system. It's very, um, there are a lot of just parts of who you are that are influenced by those that are around you. So when you grow up in foster care and everything's very impermanent, um, it starts to make you feel like you are also impermanent and developing long-term trusted relationships can be difficult. Having stable housing, having a stable job. I know that I've been able to uh, be very fortunate and, and have uh, provided those, selves, those things to myself in my, um, after turning 18, but it's a very hard road. Um, it's a very, uh, there's mental health, there's physical health, there's education, housing, and really, you know, what it comes down to is just having support around you. You know, you've had your relationship with your biological family severed from you. Um, your caseworker's probably not been the same the whole time in care. Um, mine, I was adopted and then it was a failed adoption. So then there's that loss as well. And so it can, it just takes a toll on how you view the world and the trust that you have in the world around you. What do you have to say to any of our listeners who may have been in a situation similar to yourself? They spent a majority of their childhood in foster care or are currently in care right now. Anyone who's listening, what do you, what words do you have to say for them? Uh, I would just say to each of you that um, are hearing this, if, if you are in the system and that is just one part of who you are and, and your experience in life, that's not your full identity. 
um, the world can be safe and just never have, uh, never lose hope in that there's a brighter uh, future for you and that, you know, always be transparent about anything that's happening to you um, because hiding all of that <laughs> inside um, or thinking that you deserve any of that mistreatment that you may be experiencing, um, don't try not to do that to yourself. And um, just always know that there's a brighter day tomorrow. I never would have seen my life where it is today, and I'm very proud of it. And you can be that, too. Jennifer Rhodes is the National Scholar Coordinator at Youth Villages. Jennifer, I want to thank you for coming on to the show, and thank you for sharing your experience with us. Good luck to you. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Alona. We're talking this hour about the history of troubles at Tennessee's Department of Children's Services. Tweet us your thoughts at This Is Nashville. Now, you know, some of the problems that Jennifer and Kendra have faced with the system are challenges that DCS has struggled with for a long time. In fact, there are a lot of parallels between what is happening now and what was happening with the department more than two decades ago. That's when the agency was sued in federal court. That suit and the reforms that followed could be used as a blueprint to help DCS get back on track. Here to talk about that is Mary Walker, former general counsel for DCS, and Andy Shukoff, former Davidson County juvenile court judge. I want to thank you both for being with us today. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Now, you know, I should say we invited DCS Commissioner Margie Quinn to join us on air for today's discussion and a spokesperson declined on her behalf. Now, you know, the federal case I just mentioned is Brian A. versus then-Governor Donald Sunquist and then-DCS Commissioner George Hathaway. It's often referred to as Brian A. for short, and it sent shockwaves throughout the state. Mary, you helped negotiate the settlement in this case. Tell us about the lawsuit, and who was it brought on behalf of? Okay, the lawsuit was brought by the Children's Right Organization out of New York City, who is a child advocacy a law firm. And the class of children, it was a class action lawsuit, consisted of children in foster care or who would be in foster care. So it was a broad-ranging lawsuit that was certified as a class. The lead plaintiff, Brian A., was nine years old, and he had been in an emergency shelter in Memphis for seven months without adequate mental health care, physical uh, care, without school, and uh, with older boys who were there because of delinquency charges. Mm -hmm. The other children who were named as plaintiffs had many of the problems that have been described. They had been multiple placements, no progress toward returning home or moving to adoption, and lack of schooling and proper mental health treatment. Now, Andy, you were involved in the case as well, right? part of a technical assistance committee that had responsibilities initially for working with the department to try to provide support for their reform efforts. And then, uh, at, you know, shortly after the beginning of the lawsuit, also we were asked to monitor and report to the court on the progress that was being made. Now, Mary, what were some of the major reforms that were recommended as a result of the case? Well, there were um, a lot of problems uh, that the commissioner Hadaway recognized and had been trying to initiate reform prior to the lawsuit. Um, the lack of foster home placements, uh, congregate care where children were placed with large groups of other children, didn't receive the individualized attention that was needed. Uh, the, the caseloads of social workers, as is alleged today, 
uh, were huge. Uh, as a result of the lawsuit, the caseworkers' loads were reduced to 20 children per worker, which was a huge reduction. Uh, the social workers uh, wanted and needed more specific training prior to coming on the job and also during uh, what they were doing. But the really big thing was involving the family early on, looking at resources, both relatives who could take children if they had support, mm -hmm. if they had both services provided and also the need for uh, more communication and regular visitation. Uh, the social workers were not seeing the children because of their caseloads, mm. and so nothing happened. And we know that if children aren't moved to permanency, either returned home, uh, uh, freed for adoption, if the parent could not take care of them, that they do what happened to Jennifer, which is to age out in foster care, which we all know is not good for children. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Mary just mentioned some of the recommendations from the settlement in the Brian A. case. Andy, how long did it take to get all of those recommendations done? Yeah, I think two, two things to say. One is that it, uh, it, this is a major reform, a shifting how do you approach families and dealing with kind of long-standing problems. So it took about uh, a little over a decade and a half before the system improved to the point where it no longer needed uh, federal court oversight. It, I think it's, the, it's not, it wasn't a kind of straight upward path towards achieving success. There were, um, you know, this is a very challenging type of work. And uh, uh, in the first years, there were some early successes. There was, a, as often with the change of administration, there was a little bit of slippage. Uh, but over time, uh, the department was able to not kind of solve every problem and operate a perfect system, but I think most importantly, um, get the work into uh, a reasonably manageable form. That is, that is you know, any system uh, that is going to serve children well has to have a core of committed, well-trained, well-supported staff Mm. Uh, whose caseloads give them the capacity to give each family the attention they need uh, and to find the services for those families. And you mentioned, that was a key focus, and it took a while to accomplish that. Now, you mentioned something about leadership slippage. Who was the leader that you would credit for being able to steady the ship? Well, I would say that, that each this is a reform that I think each administration that touched it, um, from uh, starting with Governor Sundquist and his uh, le leaders starting the reform, uh, the continuation of the reform under Governor Bredesen, and the, the, and the um, you know, carrying of the reform to the, to the extent that, as you said earlier, we became a, a state that people looked at for how to improve services to families and children. Um, you know, the 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 uh, Haslam administration, you know, carried the ball that that last bit of the way, and each of the uh, each of the governors had commissioners that um, that that contributed, uh, and each of the governors, I think, at at the point when they took over, you know, when during the transition, there there were some 
short periods of time of having commissioner that just didn't have the skill set that, that the department needed. But I think this is something where you really could not um, you know, say that, that one administration or another gets credit for, <laughs> for all of the success. It really was a sustained effort supported across administrations. It's supported over uh, through various legislatures, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a consistency over that period uh, in both attentiveness to the, the challenges and in support uh, for the people trying to do this very, very difficult work. And yeah. I think the, the problem, of course, is that this work is not self-sustaining. You know, that is that, you know, it, you don't get there, achieve success, and then uh, and, and then it's it's done. Uh, you, have, you have to maintain so. that type of work and you have to maintain that attention and that level of commitment. Mary, you left the department shortly after this settlement. But, you know, you've kept watch um, from out the, from the outside with your work with big brothers and big sisters. How do you think DCS has stacked up after the period of reform? Well, I would hesitate because I don't know the inner workings of the department right now. I know that the implementation plan of Brian A. is a wonderful document that Mm -hmm. resulted in the reform, that told how to do the reform and could be a great way for the department in the present situation, which I don't know all the ins and outs. I know there are problems and uh, the caseloads of workers, the multiple placements of children, not having enough foster homes. That was resolved through the implementation plan of Brian A. But now we're back to that. Right. We are back to it, it appears. How do you think it fell apart? Well, I think what Andy was saying in terms of lack of focus, uh, perhaps uh, the the skill set necessary to continue to implement and not to take your eye off the ball, you mm-hmm. know, to know that you've got to keep recruiting foster Uh, care workers, that their supervisors have to be really trained in touch and supporting them. And the turnover that's reported on the first year social workers is particularly concerning because they're not staying in the field. The the commitment that they might have had when they came to the department has been lost. So to look at training, to look at supervision right now is obviously very important. And then, of course, you have to recruit foster homes And more importantly, I think, is to provide the services for the families from which the children came and return them to those families if they can be safe and Mm. to be sure every child has a permanent home. Mm -hmm. Now, Andy, will it take a similar lawsuit like Brian A. to fix these issues the department is facing? You know, I would hope not. I think one of the things that so uh, kind of impressed me over the period of time that I got to watch across, you know, these, these administrations is, how, um, you know, the the department itself, when we would have meetings with the uh, with the plaintiffs in the lawsuit to talk about issues, that the department developed its own capacity to identify challenges as they were arising. And so that when we had these meetings, the department was both sharing challenges that they had identified through their you know, constant watch of the data, whether those were spikes in caseloads or spikes in entries into care or dips in available foster care, and had been thinking and developing approaches to try to address those. And so you got the feeling that 
this is a system that is really um, trying to catch the problem early enough so that it does not become unmanageable. I think that's the kind of capacity that needs to be there. I don't, as Mary said, we haven't been, uh, you know, deeply involved with the department for many years now. And it's, it's, um, I don't know where that, where that capacity is, but it's critically important uh, because you will have, um, you know, you will have spikes in, in, in uh, caseloads. You'll have, uh, you know, everything we're facing, you have turnover, everything is something you just have to be prepared for and have strategies for mm-hmm. how you're going to respond both short term and long term. Is it everything we're facing now, Mary, real briefly before we end the segment is another lawsuit likely. Well, I don't know. I think if it continues on this uh, downward trend, uh, I think there are a lot of people concerned about what's going on for children in the state. But I do know that people are very concerned about offering assistance to the department, expertise that's available, and I hope the department's open to that. That was Mary Walker, former general counsel for DCS. She was joined by Andy Shukoff, former Davidson County Juvenile Court judge. I want to thank you both for being here today. Truly appreciate it. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the path forward, what a path forward could look like for DCS. What do you think needs to change at DCS? Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. Earlier in the show, we heard from people who have experienced the foster care system firsthand and discussed the roller coaster of changes DCS has seen since the settlement of the Brian A. case, which was brought in 2000. Now, I'd like to look forward and talk about what the future could look like for the embattled department. To help us understand some of the current challenges at DCS, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Cynthia Cheatham is an attorney who's been representing families and children in Middle Tennessee for nearly two decades. Cynthia Thank you for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Now, you've been working on these cases for a long time. How does what we see now with DCS compare to what you saw when you started taking these type of cases? Honestly, I don't see a lot of difference. And Mm. and the most active part of my practice intersecting with DCS uh, was during the early days of Brian A. And when Brian A. Was, uh, expired, I just I did not notice that much of a difference because one of the things they've put on the news quite a bit is about children sleeping in offices and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. I heard that all the time. I've even heard workers say they're going to have to stay in the office tonight. So I'm not sure where the improvement came. And I also am not sure that there is a lack of resources for DCS. In fact, I think they've got plenty of resources. But I do think someone somewhere is going to have to look at how they're apportioned. Mm, that's something I'm going to ask you about a little bit later. But, you know, I understand you had personal reasons beyond your practice for paying attention to Brian A., right? Yes, I had a. I have a son with severe disabilities, and um, we went through a lot of litigation over him, and um, we 
we've seen both sides of DCS. In fact, they were at, at times pretty helpful during our some of our struggles mm. uh, back during the 90s. How did that experience advocating for your son, you know, give you insights on the challenges DCS was facing? Well, you know, when we talk about DCS, we often talk about just cases, but they're children. You know, every case represents someone who cannot advocate for themselves. So I think that is a bit of awareness that people working with that system benefit from. I'd like to introduce my next guests. Jasmine Miller is an attorney at the Youth Law Center, and Zoe Jamel is the policy direct co- coordinator pardon me, at Disability Rights Tennessee. I want to thank you both for joining us. Really appreciate it. Now, now, Jasmine, the Youth Law Center is a national nonprofit that works on child welfare and the youth justice system and youth justice reform. Can you tell us where Tennessee and DCS stacks up compared to the rest of the country? So I think that the problems that we're seeing in Tennessee are not unique um, to the state, although I think the extent and the visibility of the problem is uh, unique here. I do want to actually push back a little bit on the framing of the question, because I, I think this is something that we get asked a lot as national advocates. It doesn't really matter if Tennessee is better than Kentucky or Georgia or Massachusetts if Tennessee is not serving the youth in its care. Um, mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah, to to compare states upon who's who's doing worse or better for their kids is is kind of a non-starter. I, I I get you right there. I feel that. You know, well, tell me what is unique about where we are in Tennessee right now. I can talk more about what is the same than what is unique, if uh, that's okay. Oh yeah. So I think across systems um, in in our country, we often see this issue of uh, child welfare and juvenile justice systems just not knowing how to work with families um, and not prioritizing families um, in their practice. And so when you have a system that is supposed to be building networks of care for, for children and families, and instead of investing in families is actually disinvesting in families, you start to see a cascade of issues. And so here in Tennessee, We are seeing issues with foster parent recruitment and retention. We're seeing issues like the ones that uh, Kendra and Javon were experiencing, um, where the family is not getting the services that they need um, in order to perhaps avoid um, being uh, placed in foster care or to reunify. And those issues start to spiral. Mm -hmm. When those issues start to spiral, a lot of times the system response is to say, okay, Maybe I, I can't find placements in, in homes. I can't find family-based placements. So what I should do maybe is move young people into group settings because that's maybe easier. It's easier um, to find those beds. You need money, right, and you need space in those kinds of facilities. But that's maybe a little bit easier and faster um, than working with a family uh, over a, you know, a court period of several years to try to stabilize that family. Um, And that starts to become really dangerous um, when you start to move resources into group care settings, um, because that's not an investment in families, right? That's an investment in an institutional type of setting that is unable to provide love um, and individual attention to young people. Now, Zoe, you're with Disability Rights Tennessee, but I see you nodding your head to what Jasmine is sharing. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that when we talk about 
how to move forward, especially from where we are right now, the focus really needs to be on family-oriented solutions and not in investing in facilities, which are expensive and quite frankly dangerous, which we have seen through our own monitoring and investigation of youth justice facilities across the state. Tell me more about some of the main issues you all focus on. Sure. So Disability Rights Tennessee is a protection and advocacy agency for people with disabilities. Um, Every state has a federally mandated organization like ours. And part of our mandate is to monitor facilities where people with disabilities reside or receive services. Um, And that's how we got involved in monitoring some of the juvenile justice facilities in our state. Um, The origin of sort of a report that we did back in April of 2022 was our monitoring and investigation of the Wilder Youth Development Center. Mm -hmm. And we saw a lot of dangerous conditions there, but mostly what was very concerning was the lack of connection that youth there had to their families and communities, as well as the lack of services that were being provided. Um, And, you know, one of the other thoughts I had while Jasmine was speaking is that so many of the services that we're supposed to be providing in facilities should really be available in the community, such as mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And those supports and services should be available not only to the youth who are coming into contact with DCS's system, be it on the child welfare side or the juvenile justice side, but also to their families. Mm -hmm. Now, you you talked about men. You noticed the connection between the juvenile justice system and DCS and the foster care system. Now, Cynthia, Cynthia, you you're an attorney, and having an attorney to advocate for children in court, you know, it's vital for them to get some of these services that everyone has laid out. It can't be easy for attorneys either, I imagine. What what challenges do attorneys face when they take these types of cases? Lately, and I'm talking about the last three or four years, I've heard a lot more of attorneys being turned into quasi-social workers, trying to track children that should be tracked by the department, popping in and out of foster homes, trying to decipher what's going on with kids because nobody's paying attention, mental health starting to break down, those types of things. You know, that's something that we've noted here on the show and in reporting throughout Tennessee is that there's staff shortages, caseworkers are overworked and underpaid. And some folks say, hey, we just throw money at it and it works. It's not that simple, right? It's not. And I, I think it's been touched on uh, very effectively, especially the last um, the last person that spoke, in that um, it, it's a very difficult Thing when it's a mindset, and the mindset does seem to be throw more money at it. But I also see uh, a lot of third-party providers, people that step up and say, well, we'll take kids, we'll go into the home and give drug treatment for parents and do all these things. And, you know, while the parents are trying to get better, while the kids are in foster care and all those kinds of things. And I, But I don't see a lot of Let's monitor this family very closely. Let's leave that child in there for now. There was a large study, and I think it was out of New York, that showed across the board children have worse outcomes when they're in foster care, no matter what the circumstances that led to that placement are. Mm. Now, we we got this tweet earlier this hour from Mary Rudy. She writes, quote, 
I'm sitting here crying listening to your piece about DCS. I'm not at all surprised. I used to work there as a foster care worker, and it almost killed me. God help these kids and families. DCS is just plain evil, end quote. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Alona. We're talking this hour about what a path forward for the embattled Department of Children's Services looks like. Tweet us your thoughts at This Is Nashville. Now, earlier in the show, we heard about a family who's trying to navigate the system and all the challenges that they face. Zoe, what do you think people get wrong about biological families of kids in foster care? Well, I would defer to Jasmine on this because she is really um, more of a child welfare expert than I am. But I will say that I think based on Kendra's story, there was an opportunity for DCS to provide supports and services to her biological family rather than taking her from that family. And I think um, Jasmine had a really great example of when For example, you have a child with disabilities and instead of removing that child from the home because the parents don't have the um, supports or the finances to be able to provide for that child, if the state instead stepped in and provided the, you know, be it um, funding or services and support to help the parent keep the child in the home, I think that's a really... um, a really innovative way of looking at the system and that first contact with DCS on the child welfare side. Now, the Tennessee Lookouts, Anita Wadwani reported this morning that the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation may be looking into the conduct of current and former employees of the Department of Children's Services. They're not the only agency eyeing reforms. The state legislature is also studying this, Zoe. What is the legislature recommending? Well, they have put out a list of recommendations. Um, There was a joint ad hoc committee on juvenile justice that was formed over the summer, and that followed the April 2022 report that the Youth Law Center and Disability Rights Tennessee put out about the Wilder Youth Development Center. And so this committee was formed to sort of look at those issues identified in that report and then to provide um, recommendations. Unfortunately, so many of their recommendations are focused on capacity building at facilities rather than supporting families and providing services in the community, which is what we've really been advocating for. And we did, um, we published an additional report back in December that highlights what solutions we think the legislature should be focusing on. Um, And that report was called Families, Not Facilities. Now, now Jasmine, how can these reforms and resources that are centered toward the biological families, how can they be put in place? And what would these reforms look like? So when we think about a family-centered approach to child welfare and juvenile justice. Um, It's not just, you know, one flagship intervention. It's an entire cultural change throughout the agency. Um, Thinking rather than thinking of biological um, families and foster um, parents as antagonists, right, thinking about different ways to promote relationships. Um, So there are lots of little and big examples of of things that you might be thinking about. So one example of a practice that we've seen in other jurisdictions is something called a comfort call, um, where when a young person enters, um, you know, a foster care placement, that the biological family and the foster parent, um, they have a call 
they just have a phone call where they talk about, hi, like this is my young person. This is what they like. This is what they don't like. You know, these are the things that make them happy. Um, but just having that initial phone call is actually something that seems really small, but is really powerful in setting the tone for the kind of relationship that you might be able to have. Um, that's an ex- a very small example of a, of, a, of a different type of approach to foster care, but it's very different, I think, than what we're seeing um, here in the state. Again, sets a really different tone. Could these reforms be legislative or legal? Yes, I mean, I think some of there are places in which um, there are there's room for the legislature to, you know, perhaps uh, encourage a different approach um, for for the foster care system. I think one of the things that Zoe touched on a little bit right now that we're very concerned about is, again, with the throw money at it kind of approach Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of the money that's being talked about is being allocated to group care facilities Mm -hmm. um, and not, again, to to family based um, interventions. So what we would be interested, I think, in seeing more of is, okay, what if we thought about creating family councils or youth councils that would be able to give ongoing, you know, support and evaluation in terms of thinking about what is DCS doing? How could we be improving what DCS is doing? That Mm -hmm. kind of engagement is just not really present in the system currently. And we need to be thinking about ways to um, have oversight, transparency and accountability that lives, yeah, within DCS, but also lives outside of DCS. Now, Cynthia, in your view, we've got about just under 30 minute left. How can the department improve? I think the department is going to have to be rebuilt from the ground up. I think its dysfunction has been embedded, ingrained so long for so many years that I'm not sure as it is, it's fixable at this point. That is attorney Cynthia Cheatham. She was joined by Zoe Jamail with Disability Rights Tennessee and Jasmine Miller from the Youth Law Center. I want to thank you all for being in here today and thank you all for sharing your expertise. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, parking. Do we have enough? Or do we have too much? We'll put 60 minutes on the meter to discuss. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Magnolia McKay, and today, Paige Flager. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Demir Blade. Special thanks to Tony Gonzalez and Anita Wadwani. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville and find us on Instagram. Tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.